0: I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Auto Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Auto Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey, and I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. I'm Ron Skelton, your host, and today I'm here with Colum Lang, founder and CEO of MBH Corporation, an agglomeration of small, profitable companies from around the world. Thank you for being on the show today, man. Uh, I really appreciate having you here.
1: Oh, pleasure. It's great to be on, Ron.
0: It is interesting. I've been following your, uh, your progress and your, your company for probably the better part of two years now since I did I, I, I had a mentor that you, we have a common uh, association with and heard about your stuff and read, you know, there was a book you did. I read one of your books and stuff. So it's really cool to have you on here. You, you've created something really unique and I'm looking forward to talking about that today. Yeah, cool. Thank you. I appreciate you following us. Uh, I always like to start with the origin story. Kind of, how did you get into this space? What got you started? You know, kind of leading up to where you're at now. Yeah,
1: so um, I mean, I've always been an entrepreneur. So just as a kid, hustling and doing little side jobs and things, and and um, my first. Kind of grown-up business was a recruitment company that I had at uh, the height of the dot-com boom. I was providing IP engineers to telcos in Europe, uh, which was incredibly lucrative uh, and, and a lot of fun. Um, and and that kind of uh, yeah, that, that did very very well. Uh, and at the age of 23 or 24, I think I was at the time. Obviously, I thought that was all down to my personal talent and and good looks and not the fact that i was in the biggest bubble ever um and uh needless to say that the bubble burst and i discovered i wasn't nearly as talented or good looking as I, as I thought i was um but it also kind of broke me it made me unemployable to anyone else um and so uh by default i've been a, an entrepreneur ever since um been all, all over the place been in asia now for 20 years i think um when i I was always been interested in sort of macro trends um and one of the trends obviously technology was a a huge trend but one of the other trends that really stood out to me was the fact that there was the largest transfer of wealth in the history of mankind from west to east um west back to east originally started here Um, and yeah as a young entrepreneur it just struck me that it made more sense to be on the receiving end of that equation than on, on the giving end so Moved over to Asia, uh, based in Singapore now, um, which great, absolutely great, great country. But also, I, I spend, uh, as you know, I spend a lot of my life on a plane, bouncing around the world, uh, um, and this is a great sort of kicking off point for that. Uh, um, and then, uh, yeah, about um, I guess about seven years ago, uh, the the mentor that you were talking about, a friend of mine, Jeremy Harbour. Um, I'd been chatting to him, he'd come up with a, a concept of grouping companies together. Um, I'd already uh, bought one company at that point, point. Um, and uh, yeah, he had this idea of grouping companies together and taking them public, um, so we started working on that together full-time about seven years ago, um, and yeah, it's been, been quite, quite the ride ever since
0: yeah you guys have done quite a number of acquisitions right so uh, the current model the uh, mbh corporation that's an agglomeration of i was looking at your website over 25 is that is that accurate
1: yeah i think it's 28 at the moment but um, yeah, it keeps 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 growing yeah
0: so let's talk a little bit about that what is an agglomeration i mean that's a that's a, a something you guys formulated or is that is that a
1: Yeah, so I think like all all of the elements of what we do have been done before. I think as far as we know, we're the first people that have done it in the particular kind of methodology that that we use. And and I think the main difference is that we started very much from a bottom-up perspective of what's best for the small business owner. Um, I think if you look at a lot of kind of roll-ups, M&A, they're very... Often top-down driven, um, it kind of starts with you know, often it's ego-driven, um, and it, it kind of starts with this idea that the acquirer is the smartest person in the room, um, and and so you end up with a lot of clashes. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, like most most m destroys more value than than it creates. Um, And we'd seen that happen. It happened to us. We'd had companies that we'd created that had been acquired. And then, um, you you know, you you kind of get the acquiring company wants to put their mark on on it and and fix things. Um, And often that destroys some of the value and and you lose a lot of talent. So we basically had this idea that how do we solve a, a problem for small business owners and, and While the rest of the world was obsessed with startups, we had surrounded ourselves, our peers were traditional small business owners that were profitable and cash generating, Um, but they were kind of reaching sort of plateaus that most small business owners eventually reach. Um, And, you know, we, we refer to it as the scale paradox. Like if you've built a successful small business, you reach a point where you in order to get even bigger, you need to win bigger contracts, but you can't win those bigger contracts because the big companies don't like giving big contracts to small businesses That's uh, procurement best practice. Um, so you kind of get get stuck. You sort of bump up against this glass ceiling uh, at the time when you need to recruit the, the next top level of management to take you across that that sort of ravine um, they don't want to work for small businesses because small businesses just don't have the resources to compete uh, on a level playing field with big companies. So that's one challenge that all small businesses tend to go through. Um, the second challenge that all small business owners will be aware of is that if you've built a successful small business, you know, maybe you're doing 10 million, 20 million uh, of revenue or, or above or, or even a little bit below, um, you're, you're creating a huge amount of value in the world. Uh, like You're clearly creating value for your clients. That's why they keep coming back. Um, you know, you've got 50, 100, 200 staff that you're clearly creating value for them and their families. But there's a whole ecosystem of suppliers and partners and landlords that are all extracting value because you as the owner get up and go to work every day. Um, but typically there's only one person that, doesn't get to extract a commensurate amount of value from the business. And and of course, that's the business owner them, themselves. It's uh, very easy to put money into the business, much harder to take it out. And of course, yeah, in the good years, hopefully you're drawing a, a good salary and, and dividends, but um, compared to the economic footprint that you've created, it's negligible what you can actually extract. Um, and so really the only way you can monetize that value is to sell the business but actually a lot of business owners yeah, you know, we might grumble about clients and stuff but actually we we love what we've built and we love building and growing and scaling um and and that's what excites us so we don't actually want to scale the business but we would like to to monetize some of it um and so what you find happening is uh yeah and i think kind of um I'm sure other guests have touched on this with a lot of baby boomers now sort of thinking about retirement. What happens is that sort of the default option for small businesses is to be acquired by a bigger player in the industry. Um, and so uh, you you, get, you do one of these deals and it's the biggest deal of your life and you're very excited. But invariably, these deals are structured as a three-year or a five-year Burnout for the for the owner, um, and and that's fine. Yeah, the acquiring company knows that you're the talent and and it's your child, and they want you to shepherd it. Um, the problem is that us business owners, we, we don't make very good employees. Um, we're not very good at being told what to do, uh, especially when it comes to our own baby. Um, and of course, the acquiring business needs you to conform to their own systems and processes. So they um, very quickly tell you that, you yeah, know, you need to go and renegotiate all of your client contracts, put them on our standard terms. And, um, yeah, it's great that your staff think of you as family, but we need to renegotiate all of their contracts so that it's not upsetting the rest of uh, our existing employees. And, um, you know, suddenly you're now trying to hit these targets that you committed to uh with one arm tied behind your back and and fighting fighting them off and and it just doesn't work for for most business owners most business owners last six to 12 months tops um uh before either quitting in disgust or getting fired from their own business which is a pretty um uh pretty disappointing way to end a 20-year career of creating value for, for everyone else and often because of that you end up leaving a huge amount of the value on the table because you failed to to deliver and hit these targets Um, so this had happened to us this was happening to all of our peers on a regular basis and um, so our our idea very simply was let's create a publicly listed holding company exclusively for the use of good well-run profitable small businesses Um, And in effect, what happens is the business owner swaps their private equity for public equity, but they retain full control over the business. So it's their brand, it's their hiring and firing, uh, it's their culture, they they don't need to run decisions past anyone, they just carry on running the business. But now when they go and pitch for business, they're a global multinational PLC, Uh, um, so they they can leverage the balance sheet to get win much bigger contracts. When it comes to recruiting and retaining good senior teams, they've got actual public stock options that they can use. Um, if they want to grow through acquisition, they have the mechanism to do that. They have the currency to, to do that. So um, that, that's really the, the concept. And then you basically end up with a holding company full of very motivated, very driven business owners that are also the majority shareholders of the public company. So they're always in control of their own holding company. Um, and, it, yeah, it just creates a, a very nice dynamic. And so MBH is one of the, uh, the groups that we've created to to do that. And, and as you mentioned, we're up to about 28 companies now um, in the last three years. So we started with an empty holding company. Um, we're now 28 companies doing a hundred and probably US terms, about 150 million of revenue. Uh, it's nine or 10 million US of EBIT um, paid dividends every year. Um, and I think, and that's, that's been achieved even with kind of two years of, of COVID. So uh, probably the, the hardest two years to be running a group of small businesses. Um, that uh, that's probably put us about two years behind schedule. But yeah, still still doing okay.
0: I see that it's very diverse, right? A lot of holding companies are holding um, you know, in a central area, they may be uh, you know, manufacturing or construction materials, but when they say they're holding and they're broad, it's like, okay, they do construction materials, they make concrete items and they might actually own the rebar company and the sand delivery, but it's still servicing one big anchor corp. I love that you. there's some protection for the investors out there, the guys buying your stock, because it's diversified, like really diversified. I look in on here that uh, everything from education, engineering. At one point, you had a, a taxi company, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we still have, still have, um, so we, so the taxi company is an interesting one. It was a, um, like like many people, like many people, I thought taxis were were dead and buried by by Uber. Um, quite quite the opposite. So, um, so we got approached by a taxi company. They had been trying to acquire other taxi companies to build a nationwide network of taxi companies in the UK. Um, hadn't managed to to do so because of kind of egos and all, all the usual challenges. Um, discovered our model joined us and within 18 months they'd already acquired three companies underneath them, which has already propelled them from, when they joined us, they were the 357th uh, by fleet size in in the UK. Um, today they're in the top 10 by fleet size. So dr- dramatic growth in, in 18 months and, and they've still got a shopping list of another 60 plus taxi companies to, to bring in. Um, and what they they'd, they'd realised was that it no longer matters what's in the back of the taxi whether it's a person a pizza or a parcel it's just last mile logistics and if you own a nationwide network you become incredibly valuable so um yeah they joined us specifically to leverage our model to to, to grow um but you're right we we very deliberately we had done one of these groups and, and we'll still do groups that are industry specific um, Yeah, know the advantages are that it's much easier to target investors that understand that space, um, if you're industry-specific. My concern around uh, industry-specific is if that if you go into an industry, and it's a cyclical industry as many are, if you get in at the top of the cycle, it doesn't matter how good you are. It's going to be a, a painful journey. Um, and so we decided to be diversified. From day one, both geographically um, and industry. Um, now of course, we uh, we we hadn't expected a, a global pandemic to, to affect all industries, but yeah, even even then, um, when that hit us, we were predominantly we had twelve companies in the group, and seventy five percent of our revenue and profit came from the construction industry, which were very heavily hit by COVID because. Uh, lockdowns um today a couple of years later i think that the last i saw uh six of the top uh the top contributing companies in the group are across five different industries so um really powerful demonstration of how important diversity is and um diversification is and in fact, one one of the last companies that we bought just before the COVID lockdown was a, a caravan company in the UK. So it's a sixty-year-old caravan company, so motorhomes homes in, in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're kind of less glamorous than motorhomes, if that's possible. They're kind of these things that you tow around on the back of a car. And I, I got a stick from my friends when we bought this because it's about the most boring. Company that you can you can imagine that it's kind of what retired couples do. They buy a caravan, and and you always get stuck behind them on small roads. It's it's a pain. So I, I got quite a lot of stick and then of course there's lockdowns and travel um, bans all over. And and this company, uh, Robinsons Caravans, has just had two years of absolute bumper outperformance. Can uh, yeah can I get the demand? um so yeah it's it's really uh it's funny of course like at some point i'll claim that was all my
0: genius
1: (laughs) but uh pure luck you
0: know i i live in a fancy caravan so uh, i actually live in a tiny home right which is nothing more than a custom-built caravan i have a walk-in you know stone shower with river stone and tile and a full, you know, a full working full size bathroom bigger than the one I had in my other house. But, uh, okay. it is still yet on trailer and I can move it. We just like, we just drove it 1800 miles and parked it in the Redwood forest because my wife needed to be close to her family. Right. Okay. So, uh, you know, so, and we full-time live in it. So I, I get it. Um, I like the model and during, during COVID, a lot of them took off like, uh, cause you, you could, there was no other way to travel, and people still wanted to go on vacation. And if you, you know, if you were locked down and supposed to be inside of your house, I'll just drag my house with me, and I'll be locked down on this campsite, and you know, with a beautiful view. So yeah, uh... I was
1: quite, I was quite jealous. I, I was looking at the the numbers um, because supply became a huge issue in the UK and in the US um, mm-hmm. and uh, Singapore. For all its advantages, is a very small <laughs> island. So I, I was quite jealous like there are no caravans in singapore because it's basically 45 minutes from one edge of the island to the other edge of the island so it's not much exploring to be done uh, so i was quite jealous of the uh those that could get out on the open road
0: so i lived in hawaii for three years and it's about that size i think it's 20 i'm gonna somebody's gonna correct me on the show it's about 27 miles across or something at the longest on on oahu so uh and uh, a lot of people get what they call uh, rock fever, even when they're not locked down. Meaning, uh, you're stationed there. For, I was in the military; you're stationed there for two or three years, and by the year, year, end of year two, you're just ready to get off the island. I never had that problem because I like to dive and go in the water at night. So I would go, and this is Hawaii; the water's always warm. So at night, I dive during the day. I was a full time college student, so I never had the opportunity to get bored. Right, full time military, full time college student, and had you know, I had some recreational stuff to do on, on the water. So never took up surfing. I I tried once or twice, got hurt both times and decided it just wasn't for me. (laughs) And here's the, I mean, I was an adrenaline junkie at that age, right? I raced motorcycles and everything else. But uh, the last time I ever went surfing, the the thing I heard is no Holly boy, no, which means that you're not supposed to be on top of the wave. You're supposed to be in front of it because when the wave breaks, it drops you like a rock on the beach and it hurts. But, uh, no, I woke up to a big Simone boy about to give me mouth the mouth and decided I wasn't surfing anymore. So, knock uh, me out. But hey, um, let's go into kind of. I, I love the diversification. I mean, you got everything from. Uh, uh, correct me wrong. I mean, from these caravan and 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 the taxi. To you acquired a, or at least you guys were talking about it. A sausage company here in the United States, right? Sausage manufacturer.
1: Yeah, so we've got uh, uh, Boulder Sausage in Colorado, the uh, the official sausage provider of the Denver Broncos proud to announce um so yeah that's a great little business um original german recipe in uh, been making sausages in colorado for 42 years i think uh, jim uh, is, the, is the principal there um great business and uh yeah so we brought them uh, i guess a couple, couple of years ago uh, um, and they've got there's, there's a bunch of other f&b businesses um, around there that, that we're looking at as well. So um, yeah, that was our, I think that was our second or third US company.
0: Cool. So let's talk about the diversification of location. Right, you have US, you got the UK. What, where all are you guys located? So
1: basically, we've tended to focus on English language, English rule of law. Um, so New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, UK, US, Canada. Um, I think right now about 70% of the companies are UK-based. Um, that's not by design. Uh, that's just uh, how it's kind of panned out. So we uh, we, we tend to have, uh, at any given time, we'll probably have 40 or 50 companies going through due diligence, and it's just, you know, deals can complete very quickly, or they can take years. Um, it's just kind of which ones fall, fall out of the pipeline. Um, if... If they fit within an existing industry vertical, we we put them into that industry vertical. If they don't, then we'll create a new industry vertical for them. Um, When we launched the first two verticals, we had construction and education. Um, And so investors, I always used to get the the question about, where's the synergies between construction and, and education? Um, and I kind of got bored of, of trying to explain that, that we don't rely on synergies. You know, these are profitable cash generating businesses. Um, we don't need synergies for the model to be successful. Uh, and I, I kind of got bored of that answer. So I started telling people that it was child labor. It was uh, what we knew. <laughs> um, But uh, yeah, I realized that joke's funnier in some countries than other countries. So I had <laughs> to stop yeah.
0: Um, well, I've got a dark yeah. sense of humor so I laughed and probably uh, you know somebody th- out there is gonna go you're going to hell for laughing over that. So. Yeah. What, what, what's interesting though, I mean a lot of m a
1: does have this obsession with synergies and one of, one of the things that we have realized was synergies look fantastic on paper, they look fantastic in textbooks. Um, the problem is when you've got humans um, you, you kind of end up with all sorts of, of challenges. Huh? Um, And you'll find two companies in the same industry, but if they don't get on, they don't want to. If they've got different clients, they don't want to work together. Um, And actually, if I look at the the most interesting JVs and and partnerships within the group, they're all cross-industry. the, yeah, some really kind of interesting, unique ones. I- interesting, like the construction and the education sector have worked together. They've created an apprenticeship program for disadvantaged youth to get them into uh, into the construction industry, which is really struggling with um, in finding employees. Uh, the taxi company and the construction company both realized that they had challenges with. They needed more effective ways to get cash to their employees because towards the end of the month, they'd be running out of cash. So they designed an app that allowed them to draw down their cash. And and so they're working together on that. Um, And these are things that like, nobody sitting with an MBA would would ever think of. Like, We certainly didn't think of it. Um, But when you put smart entrepreneurs in a room together, all with the best interest in, in the group profitability, uh, yeah, you just get all sorts of very cool ideas and, and opportunities popping up.
0: I think that and this is just a personal opinion from the last couple of years of evaluating stuff and really studying the M and A space. I think the trying to accomplish synergies is kind of the magic carpet, right? It, you know, a lot of people think it's cool. but I, I honestly think it destroys more businesses than it, than it helps. Um,
1: I think, um, I, look, I think it, it, yeah, it, it works in theory clearly it can work in, in practice. And I, I think, um, you know, the private equity approach to doing it, first of all, they're doing it with much bigger companies. Um, they can offer, and ride the three pain that it takes to uh, disrupt and lose a lot of the talent. So, so you know, they, they acknowledge that is going to happen before it kind of comes out the other side. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm not saying it, it can't work, but, but generally, I think, especially with small businesses, and, and, and this is, you, you know, a lot of people try and do these roll-up and lists, and, and you know, they'll buy seven dentists um, and and try and merge them all together and these are seven business owners that have been running their own business in a particular way for 10 20 years, they're not going to (laughs) change
0: you
1: know there's going to be so much resistance and and when you've got a relatively small business um, creating that kind of wholesale change is very very difficult to to do Um, so yeah, I mean, we just um, we, we kind of acknowledge that that's too hard, and and we because we're buying good profitable, cash-generating businesses, and basically we want them to keep doing what they do. And I think one one of the um, uh, common misconceptions from especially the investor community is that small businesses are badly run. Um, there's there's kind of this idea that If if you haven't become a big business, you're doing something wrong. And and actually, small businesses, uh, there's there's always opportunities. There's always, like, when you look at a business, you can always see what they could be doing differently. But actually, small businesses tend to be pretty effective, pretty lean. Um, You know, they don't tend to waste money because it's the owner's money. Um, Whereas you can trust that with a big corporate that's got you know, they, they can lay off 300 middle managers um, to appease the shareholders and it doesn't make a difference to, to the day-to-day running of the business. So, um, you know, small businesses, they may have one or two employees that um, aren't, aren't fully pulling their weight, but equally those, those employees may be the ones that keep the culture of the company and therefore you know, private equity would get, get rid of them. Um, but they would destroy half the culture of, of the company and the business owner knows that right, they might not be the most effective employee in the world, but it's worth keeping them because they, the other employees like having them around. So there's a lot of kind of, uh, I think small business is much more about psychology, um, whereas big business, you can you can play more with the balance sheet.
0: Yeah, and I think all acknowledge that what I said was a little bit erroneous in the fact that I don't believe that synergies will destroy a company. I believe that synergy trying to create synergies in a roll up, a small roll up seven to 10 companies is a three to five year play. I I think it's not an overnight type of thing. And if you're, and I just, I really, I really like what you guys have got going on. Let's talk a little bit about like kind of the process because I can imagine um I don't know if you're aware we, we created something similar started a marketing roll up but in the agglomeration model where we left them in control it was working really well and I won't get too far into the story of why why it stopped but uh one of the things that was challenging is to get a common model of evaluation because every person that came in thought their business was worth way more than it was what it should have been which okay but we had to get a standard model so because the way we we lined ours up is everybody we were taking a minority stake in the companies as as i think you got you, you guys kind of do uh, in return for you know uh, you know a minority equity stake in return for becoming part of this larger uh corporation so tell me about how you do the valuation and what your mindset around the valuation is
1: yeah, so we, we actually take 100% of every company. So every, every company is 100% wholly owned. Um, when we first started this, what we were trying to do, so basically the, the, the game is an arbitrage between what a big public listed company can um, trade for versus what a small private company can trade for. Um, when we first got into it, we tried to give the business owners as close so that number as possible because this was designed to help business owners. Um, the problem that we found with that was that it was we were too close, sometimes even above, an exit valuation. And this wasn't supposed to be an exit. It's it's not an exit. It's basically a method for a small business owner to grow through leveraging the, the power of a group. Um, but also to be able to take some liquidity off the table while keeping control. Um, And so as long as we were giving them really good valuations, we attracted people that wanted to accept. uh, And so that was the wrong model. So what we then shifted to was um, a fixed perpetual earning model, which is, based on what your last year's EBIT contribution is. so And, and it's EBIT, not EBITDA. Um, anyone that plays with numbers will know that DA is where you can hide whatever you want to hide. So uh, we, we stick to, to EBIT. We're interested in cash flow. Um, and every company is on the same model. Uh, so it's, um, basically speaking, it's three times earnings plus whatever's on your, your balance sheet. Um, so if you've got money in the in the bank, that comes in. Um, so if you've got, you know, say, so you're doing a million dollars of EBIT, uh, and you've got half a million in the bank, um, you might get three and a half million of stock on day one, and then every year thereafter, any incremental EBIT profit gets multiplied by three times. So uh, if you came in at 1 million, if you did 1.5 million in your first year, that 0.5 million we times that by three, and you get another 1.5 million in stock. Um, and each each lump of stock that you get is locked up for 12 months. Um, so when you get your bonus shares, they're locked up for 12 months, but your last lot of shares have just come unlocked. So you can sell down some, take some cash off the table, but still keep control of the business. Um, and that's a very, uh, yeah, that's what really kind of one of the foundations of, of the model is that you've got that equitable model. Everybody in the group knows that everybody else came in on the same model. And that's important for the culture of the, the group. But it also saves us a huge amount of time um, because we do away with all of the negotiation stuff. So you've got two, two things that typically slow things down. One, as you point out, is that every business owner thinks their company is worth more than the buyer wants to pay for it. Um, So first of all, we have to kind of switch the mindset to you're not selling the company, you're taking it public. So automatically that takes us away. We don't use the word valuation for for a start. The second thing that happens is that no lawyer um, is going to want to do an easy deal. Uh, you know, they're going to want to try and complicate things they're going to try and want to um, do the best for, for their client so they're going to kind of try and push back and introduce clauses and, and all of these things um, well because every other company in the group has signed up to the same terms and the same model um, basically we can say to the lawyer well, you, you can mess around all, all you like but yeah, you, know, you would have to convince twenty-eight other businesses that your business is significantly better than theirs, which um, which is a hard thing to do. So, it it enables us to move much quicker because it's uh yeah it's just a, a standardized cookie cutter approach.
0: I like that. Now, you said it's publicly traded. What's what what stock exchange are you guys traded on?
1: So we're traded on the. So UK PLC, we listed on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange because it's one of the most liquid, Frankfurt in Germany, one of the most liquid um, stock exchanges. is also quite flexible to our model. So um, a lot of the, we wanted to be on a main market. Frankfurt is a main market. It's one of the top ones in the world. Um, a lot of main markets... Have restrictions around decentralized control. So they want to see centralized control, and, and we're the ultimate in decentralized control. Um, and a lot of main markets also have controls around how much new stock you can issue. Um, so, for example, on the London Stock Exchange, where we would have listed, uh, if you create more than 20% of your market cap in new issued stock, you have to delist, reissue, and prospectus. And then uplist again, um, which obviously our, our model wouldn't wouldn't work. Um, and then we did a cross listing to the OTCQX, mainly so that American business owners could see our, our ticker in their app. Um, that hasn't really worked so well. There, there seems to be a, a um, yeah, a lot of the brokers don't don't seem to cover uh, the, the smaller stocks on the OTCQX, um, and we're kind of uh, we're sort of exploring other other markets as as well. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting
0: space. We evaluated that because the uh, the rollup we were doing was international, and you know, one of the exit strategies was you know you did it you you took it public then you know kind of a SPAC right you kind of took it public then bought into it, but uh, we were we were looking at that as one of the exit strategies, like either buying and you know, acquiring something that is public and then it, you know consuming all these into it or the other way around, taking it something public. The difference between the Frankfurt exchange and the U S process was to the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars, as far as the legal process to take a company through that and the regulatory nightmare to do so. Um, You know, I, I I can see why you wouldn't go straight to try to like try this on NASDAQ or something. Right. I mean, interestingly,
1: like I, we, we, we did one listing with NASDAQ in Europe uh, a few years ago. We've got a very good relationship with NASDAQ. I was with one of their IR guys at the barbecue the other day. Um, they they were pushing quite hard. When we started talking about doing a cross-listing to the US, uh, they were pushing quite hard because it's an international company. It's fast growth. Um, we obviously, we bring in investors from all around the world because the business owners from all around the world. Uh, so they really like the model. The challenge for us is on Frankfurt, we have to submit two sets of numbers a year. So audited numbers in the management accounts six months later. Frankfurt is quarterly. Um, and even twice a year, it's a fairly significant burden for a small company so to have 28 companies trying to submit numbers every quarter uh, they just wouldn't be doing <laughs> their core business uh, So yeah we decided that for, for now it, it didn't make much sense
0: i like that so um what's you, you you said earlier that you guys typically can have as many as 50 businesses and some some form of evaluation due diligence and stuff what's the main criteria the selection criteria what are you looking for
1: so for us, it's really about um, finding good, well-run businesses that we're not going to have to worry about. Um, you know, we're not staffed up with a team of MBAs to go in and fix problems. Uh, that's it's an incredibly lean model. MBA Journey has two full-time employees, which is myself and uh, Victor Tan, our CFO. Um, everything else we outsource. Uh, so we're not in a position to, to fix companies. We're not interested in distressed companies or anything like that. Um, so we're really looking for good, well-run, profitable companies, and preferably where they're still owner-operated. Um, and I'll give you kind of a, an example of why that that makes a difference. Um, and I didn't even know that this had happened until after it happened. But during COVID, when, when times were really tough, um, the some of the business owners were shoveling their own money into their companies to cover salaries and all the stuff that you do as a private business owner anyway. Um, but they're now part of a PLC. Um, you know, if you if you take a purely... Uh, cynical financial look at it. They're employees. Why on earth are they taking their own money to tide over cash flow problems in the business? It, it doesn't make any sense to, to the finance community, but that's, that's why we love business owners because, you know, this is something that they've poured their life and soul into for 20 years. Um, it means more this is not just a financial transaction for them um you know they, they this is their legacy uh, part of why they've joined us is because they they don't want to have somebody else come in and destroy the brand and uh fire half their family and stuff so um yeah where, where possible we we like it where the business owner is still still has some level of of involvement and, and care in business
0: there's no way as a business owner that you cannot tie part of your identity to it. I think we do it a little bit too much actually, but as part of, you know, owning a business, you go in there day in and day out, you work with the same people, you've hired them, but you've been around these same people for a year, five years, 20 years, sometimes, you know, lives. Uh, if you're a second or third generation, you know, company, I've seen companies where like, you know, this guy's worked here, his dad worked there and his granddad helped start the company kind of thing, you know. Right there's a sense of loyalty to those employees that is yeah, really- and, and I think
1: this, this is the bit that a lot of people don't understand and it's why it's a small business is all about psych, psychology. So, you know, somebody will look at us from the outside through the lens of a balance sheet, so a typical investor or private equity, and they'll see 28 companies and 25 CFOs and they'll say, well, yeah, that makes no sense. Like, buy 20 of the CFOs, consolidate the finance, function and you've just made an extra three million in, in profit the problem is like you say that those cfos are often they often the most trusted person in the business they've often you know half the companies i see it's like the brother-in-law or something is <laughs> the cfo um you know firing that cfo to make a five percent incremental gain it's just not worth it for the headaches and the pain it causes um so uh yeah, I think um, you know, a lot of people miss the intangible benefits. Um, and, and for us, every time we add a company, we're adding typically 20 or 30 years of entrepreneurial experience from that founder. We're adding their network. Um, those employees now have a larger base to connect with and, and chat to as do all the other employees. So we have kind of forums where the marketing guys get together and the finance guys get together and the ops and the ESG guys get together. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of... Um, again, comes comes back to the psychology and the personalities that, that's very key.
0: So uh, there's something I keep wanting to think... I keep thinking of I want to talk about because I don't want to miss this because there's a huge potential there. Do you guys... Do the 28 companies, the CEOs and the leaders of those companies, do you guys meet regularly in some form of mastermind? And like, how do you guys help move each other forward? Because, oh, cool. The reason yeah. I'm asking is that's a huge potential. Like that many, and the fact that they're in different industries, like one of the best things I've ever seen is I used to go to entrepreneur meetings every single week and everybody's like, well, you're in real estate. Why would you go to this thing with a startup? we like, "Watch startups pitch? I said because those those guys are cha- facing challenges and doing things on a daily basis. That if I think clearly enough, I can probably apply some of the stuff they're doing to what I'm working on, right? Yeah.
1: So yeah, I mean we we do everything on Slack. So there's people bouncing ideas around on Slack all the time. We have monthly uh, Zoom meetings. We have to split them into two now because of time zones. Um, and then twice a year, once a year, we get together just the the principals. So next month, we're two months time. We're meeting in Phuket. Um, yeah. Just the principles uh, and then six months after that, we'll meet in London. So principals and sort of senior team members, so that they can kind of interact as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's very valuable, kind of having having that connection.
0: I do a lot of masterminds. I host one for the for M and A guys out there. Uh, every two every two weeks, we get together and just to kind of help each other move the game forward. But I honestly think that what you've got built in there is extremely powerful because you have a whole network. It's like, Hey, you know, I've got this business friend of mine trying to get, you know, into Europe. He's got this product who do you know. I mean, you, you just have a network of people who have a common interest to see each other succeed. That's, that's extremely powerful.
1: Yeah. So, so one of the kind of, so I, a lot of my thinking around MBH is not of it as a company, but more of it as an ecosystem um that, that attracts small businesses, and some of them will go bust over time. Some of them, you yeah, know, entire industries. If we're successful and we're multi generational, as, as I want us to be, uh, entire industries will disappear. But I kind of look at the if you look at something like YPO, Young Presidents Organization, or EO organization, they're these incredible, powerful networks. They have the mastermind groups, um, and they have grown very successfully, and if you take that model, if you think of us more of as more of a network um, that business owners say, OK, I want to build along to this network, well, imagine those mastermind groups where everyone in the group owns a slice of the future of everyone else. You know, they, they actually have that stake in your future. Um, and it, I've noticed it changes the dynamic. Um, you know, one of the things that used to frustrate me as an entrepreneur was the amount of people that would give you uh, good advice. Um, but it was, yeah, they had no skin in the game. So, you know, they would tell you, you know, it kind of goes through different phases. Like a while ago, everyone had to have an app. It didn't matter what you were doing. Oh, got to get an app or go into China. If you just get $1 off for everyone in China, it'd be easy. Um, and say, well, it's got these kind of theories, but they've got no skin in the game. Um, and that doesn't happen in our group. Uh, if somebody asks for advice, they get very measured, very well thought out advice because nobody wants them to go and waste money on, on a frivolous project. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very powerful thing.
0: I, I can see that. That's that's incredibly powerful. Even in, like, in the masterminds I run, a lot of times somebody will throw an advice out and they'll make I, I have this thing where I like, have you done that? Or did you read it in a book or seen it on on a YouTube, right? I, I, I want to know the difference. And it's okay to share an idea that you've pulled from a book or you've seen something on YouTube or you know a guy that did it. But when you're telling somebody they should try to this, they need to know whether or not you've been there or not because they need to know whether or not they're going to call you when it doesn't work. And I, this is what's going on. And, you know, what did you do when this happened? Or they need to go find the guy that watched that made the video or, you know you know, wrote the book that, that you read that you got the idea from. So I get, I mean, I just think there's a huge, um, you know, I think it's more powerful than the possible synergies you could have is a possible, like having 28 business entrepreneurs on a common vision. So let's talk about that. Uh, What is the, I don't, when I say long-term I think five years or whatever, but when you say long-term vision, what, what do you, what is your time span on a long-term vision?
1: Yes, yeah, so I put out an article last year talking about MBH 2121, um, so kind of 100 years from now, um, and I. that's really kind you know, we've got companies in the group that are second generation companies, 40, 50, 60 years old. My view is that we owe it to them to have a platform that if they survive for the next 50, 60 years, we're still going to be there. Um, so I, I did a lot of research into companies that survived hundreds of years, or the very few that survived over a thousand years. Like what? What was the commonality? Um, what mistakes did they make? Um, and you know, what, what I realised was that, that actually there's very little commonality amongst um, companies that have survived over a thousand years, except they have all have one thing in common, which is they haven't messed up. Um, they haven't done something stupid that has killed them. Um, and uh, the one that sort of sticks out the most is, is debt. You know, a lot of companies take on too much debt and that, that kills them. So um, putting together, like a lot of where I spend my time thinking about for MBH is the governance structure. I'm not always going to be on the board. It's that the model is designed to have... Uh, a constantly rotating board and constantly rotating CEO. It shouldn't be determined by um, you know, uh, any one driven leader. That the model has to be sustainable, um, but that depends very much on having very strong governance and uh, uh, yeah, culture around that. So that, that's a lot of what what I focus on. Um, and yeah, I got yeah. You know, basically, the idea is that that we build a community of small businesses um, hopefully multi-generational that can support each other and the more companies you bring into it the stronger the proposition becomes the more value that you you add Um, but you know you've also got a lot of headstrong uh, opinionated business owners in there so making sure that there is that Equitable model that, that's based on meritocracy and um, uh, is, is a fair model and, and is sustainable is, is a huge part of the
0: thinking. Maybe this is, I maybe I should have done my research a little bit better, but I probably should not know the answer to this just by reading through your website and stuff. But have you guys acquired like what I would consider like corporate components, like a marketing company, an accounting company? Like, could you build an ecosystem to support this or you outsource a lot of that?
1: So basically we don't go out targeting businesses um you yeah, we, we get over a thousand applications a year from companies that, that target us and, and if there's uh M&A guys out there that want to work with us please please reach out um uh yeah our, our view is much more about finding good good companies um over time we will attract great Marketing companies and great accounting companies, and and they'll join us, and and that's good. And and the companies in the group may or may not choose to use them It's entirely their at their discretion. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of not something that we we'll sort of particularly focus on. But it, so
0: one of the challenges we had was that internal accounting process. So when you do have synergies across and people want to work together, is there, is it just straight billing? Is there a discount? Is there, you know, like this cross selling upselling, uh, commissions going on. Did you guys tackle that? Or you just let them figure it out.
1: Just let them figure it out. I mean, it doesn't, you know, trading within the group doesn't really help us because it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just in, in an internal transaction. Um, uh, yeah, you know, companies cross-selling for each other is great, um, and leveraging off each other is is great. But yeah, we don't. Um, yeah, you know, it's pretty much up up to them to to figure it out as as in what makes sense for them. There's there's no pressure on them to, to work with each other if they don't want to.
0: So for a while there, you guys were uh, having like people like myself, uh, acquisition entrepreneurs. If we've seen something that would be a better fit for your model than it would be for something we want to do, we could make an introduction. Are you still taking those introductions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've got an introduce a program that's um, very generous.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're we're getting close to the top of the hour. Let's make sure everybody knows how to reach out to you. What's the best way for somebody that either wants to work with you, want to take a deeper look at what you got, maybe invest in it, or maybe bring you deals? What you know, how would you want people to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely, So I
1: go and have a look at mbhcorporation.com. dot It's it's uh, incredibly comprehensive. Uh, there's a business owner section there, um, and the team's very responsive. If you leave a message, you'll you'll get a response within twenty four hours um reach out to me on linkedin uh my, my team will kind of especially if you mention if, if you connect to me mention this podcast um and uh my, my team will let that through um and yeah look if if you've got good good companies uh we would love to talk to you or awesome. investors We're always open to that as well,
0: well i always like to ask if, if if somebody watched the show and they can only remember one thing from the show what would you want them to remember
1: um, I think just
0: uh, when it comes to small business at a it, it's
1: more about being creative. And I think if you can start with what the business owner wants rather than what you want, uh, it will go a long way to making it a smoother process.
0: You guys certainly have put a lot of thought into that. Like, what does the business owner want? What do they need? And, um, you know, what will make a difference in, in, in the world of, you know, of small business owners and the longevity of their companies. So that that's really cool. I appreciate your time here. Um, I want to make sure everybody knows that they can reach out to you. And um, again, um, thank you guys for listening to the show today. Um, As always, I always tell everybody we do hold a mergers and acquisitions uh, meetup uh, twice a month. I do one in the morning and one in the evening, my time so that people like, uh, column here can uh, join if he wants because uh, <laughs> if I did it at the same time, it wouldn't work for, for everybody. So I have people from uh, Singapore. I've got people from uh, Australia, a lot of people from the U.S. Everybody joins that. So that'll be in the show notes. Uh, uh, Columns uh, contact information, including his LinkedIn, everything will be in the show notes. So if you're uh, trying to reach out to him, you'll be able to get to it by looking at the show notes here. Uh, I appreciate your time and uh, thank you for being on the show, man. Thanks, sir. Cool, and that's the show. Hang out for just a second. Hey, it's your host Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline nine one eight six four one four one five o that's nine one eight six four one four one five o Call us and tell us about our show. ask questions uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you again that number is nine one eight 641-4150. Call our hotline, leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created 5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between 5 million and 30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A to decision makers who are ready to buy. the Investors and Entrepreneurial Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich. With accountability partnering, where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com, that's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind